What's going on, Far Far Away family? Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives. So how's everyone doing today? I hope all is well on your side of the galaxy because there's a whole lot going on out here in the Outer Rim. Now there's something that's happening in the Phantom that got me a little bit concerned. So I thought because of what's going on that I would remind everyone of what Star Wars is. Star Wars is a fictional creation by George Lucas. It was created to entertain people of all ages. From the first time you seen Princess Leia or Darth Vader in A New Hope, or maybe when Luke ignited that lightsaber in old Ben Kenobi's hut, or when Padme and Anakin kissed for the first time, or when Sidious executed Order 66. Maybe it was when Rey found out that she had the ability to use the Force, or the first time that you seen Kylo Ren, or when Vader cut down the rebels in Rogue One. Whatever it was that captivated your imagination and made you go all in for Star Wars, I want you to think back to that time when nothing could steer you away from Star Wars. Think about it long and hard. Remember that feeling that you had? Hold on to that feeling. And the next time someone says something that you don't agree with with Star Wars, remember these words that I'm about to say. No one can take the joy of Star Wars away from you. And the second thing I want you to remember, it is okay to like or not like something, but it is wrong to tell someone that they are wrong about what they like and dislike. We all have the right to our opinion. Some people like this show, some people hate it. That's okay. Some people love the book of Boba Fett. I really didn't care for it. Some people love the Kenobi series. Other people hated it. Some people don't like the animated series. They say that it is just for kids. I happen to love the animated series. That's the wonderful thing about Star Wars. There's enough of it to go around. You can like some of it and dislike some of it. Just remember that your opinion of something is your opinion and your opinion is precious to you. That doesn't mean that others have to agree with it. It is okay for someone to have a different opinion than yours. Star Wars is wonderful that way. We can all have an opinion about it and they don't have to be the same opinion. Okay, let's move on to something in the news. Actress Amidala Steinberg will officially be joining the Star Wars universe. She is to be the lead in the new series, The Acolyte. The official Star Wars Twitter account confirmed the news with a post, which featured an image of Steinberg posing alongside R2-D2. And the caption read, join us in welcoming Amidala Steinberg to the Star Wars galaxy. On Instagram, the actor added, next stop at Galaxy Far, Far Away. And then she said, I am so excited to finally announce that I am joining Star Wars. Hashtag the Acolyte. Honored is an understatement. May the force be with you. Steinberger, who is best known for her appearance in the Hunger Games, she was initially reported as being in talks for the part back in December of 2021. She has appeared in TV before in shows like Mr. Robinson and Sleepy Hollow, but this will mark her first time as a leading role on a TV series. The Acolyte will take place in the last days of the High Republic era, centuries before the Phantom Menace, where the thought-to-be eradicated Sith have returned. I was hoping this series would be about Bane and Xana, since Acolyte is a word used to describe a Sith apprentice, but this will take place about 680 years after Bane's death. Now, if Disney is going to stick to the rule of two, then I wouldn't be surprised if he comes up in a conversation. The Acolyte is set to air sometime in 2023, and I can't wait to see what it brings. Now, moving on to some more news, there's something happening in San Francisco that is causing an uproar in the Star Wars community. Not a good one or a bad uproar, just an uproar. There's a Star Wars strip show being performed. So before I get too far into this part, if you have small children listening, you might just want to jump ahead a little bit. Okay, kids not listening anymore, because if you have ever fantasized about a captive Princess Leia in a bikini and swinging her shackle to the filthy snare of Nine Inch Nails' sultry 1994 hit Closer, or wanted to watch a sexy stormtrooper stomp to the rhythm of the Seven Nation Army, then the Empire strips back a Star Wars parody. The traveling barless show is absolutely for you. Burlesques were popularized in the U.S. in the 19th century. They blurred the line between comedy and adult entertainment, incorporating camp and theater in a playful strip routine without nudity. 
The Empire Strips Back was originally conceived in 2011 and was performed in Sydney, Australia, with a three-night run in a small theater. It was an enormous success and earned a following thanks to the 2016 Huffington Post feature that went viral. Now it's finally returning to San Francisco, and with each draw of the curtain, you will see a series of visually unique burlesque acts. I should admit that as a Star Wars fan, this kind of intrigued me, but I am not that familiar with burlesque. So I reached out to a friend of mine in Cali and had him go and watch it. This is what he reported back to me. It was one of the most impressive live performances that he had ever seen. He said that he didn't appreciate just how dark and sexy the rebellion really was. To start off, an Oakland comedian with black nails and pastel blue cape introduces each dance with a captivated spark. But he did say that it was plenty of laughs and wasn't scared to embrace his dancer's raw talent. With each draw of the curtain, he saw a series of burlesque acts that were visually unique, all of them except for Jabba the Hutt, which is always in the nude. But then there was She's Palpatine, who looked absolutely hideous, thanks to a wrinkly blue and white skin suit. He swung on a massive disco ball to Miley Cyrus's wrecking ball. But just before that, R2-D2 resident space pimp made it rain by injecting wads of cash into the air, while a swaggering Han Solo danced to a smooth criminal, making every goth and nerd in the audience scream like animals. From the way my friend made it sound, it was a tantalizing and fun experiences for the adult Star Wars fan. Okay, now before we get to the books, we got an email from Tristan Scott, and he had an idea and thought that we could cover a Star Wars fact or something interesting about Star Wars at the beginning of each episode, which would be a cool way to get things going. And we thought it was a great idea, so thank you, Tristan, for the idea. And we thought that today we would test it out with a fun fact that some may know and others may not. So here we go. In the original Return of the Jedi ending, Luke Skywalker was supposed to turn evil. The original trilogy ends on a happy note. The dark side is defeated and all of our favorite characters survive. But according to J.W. Rensler, in his Making of a Star Wars, The Return of a Jedi, that wasn't the original idea. In early story meetings, George Lucas considered an ending for the movie that was a lot darker. When he pitched it to co-writer Lawrence Kasdan, Luke was to take off his father's mask. Then Luke was to put it on and say, now I am Vader. Now I will kill the rebel fleet and I will rule the universe. Kasdan loved the idea, telling his boss that's what I think should happen. But Lucas ultimately decided to go a different way. He felt like Luke going evil was a bit too dark for kids. Could you imagine if that happened? That would be crazy. And Star Wars as a franchise would have gone a very different direction. Okay, now let's get to Brotherhood. Because when we left off last week, we were hearing about Anakin and Padme's date and their feelings on the lower level of Coruscant. So let's see what's happening now. But first, we need to drop the intro. <laughs> We would be honored if you would join us. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Only a chair. Obi-Wan kept telling himself. A chair that Qui-Gon never sat in for a variety of reasons. He'd had a chance to join the Jedi Council, of course, turning it down to remain Obi-Wan's master. And then that opportunity never returned. Qui-Gon's path splitting off into a different direction before being ended abruptly on Naboo. It was only a chair. And yet it meant so much more. Though some time had passed, Obi-Wan still felt a complete spectrum of emotions when he entered the Jedi Council chamber and looked at the chair designated for him. He tried to let each feeling pass, though guilt was often the last to leave. Of course, he wouldn't turn down the opportunity to fill Kalman Trebor's spot, 
even on a temporary basis. Sitting on the council was among the highest honors for any Jedi. The responsibility itself hadn't proved daunting. After all, he'd mentored the most powerful and headstrong Jedi in recent memory. The questioning in him came from the title itself. Yoda, Mace Windu, Evan Peel, Eeth Koth, and others, all more skilled or more wise than him, something he freely admitted. For them to ask for his input, intimidating wasn't the right word. Instead, Obi-Wan wondered if he possibly had the proper insight and experience to contribute to such a group. But he'd been the one to suggest a Jedi in place of Palpatine. He had stayed up with Dex devising a strategy to present, something he'd done earlier to the Council and Palpatine. And with their blessing, everything led to this moment. All Obi-Wan could do was breathe, despite the weight of the galaxy on his shoulders. Our intelligence has lowered the estimated death toll to approximately 3,200. The local government has set up temporary infirmaries for rescued survivors, currently estimated at 300. Up to a thousand are listed as missing, and we have received more information to refine our simulation of the blast. Signs of Republican involvement, are there? Yoda asked the holographic armored trooper in the middle of the council chamber. Nothing specific that we can see. There are no logs of any activity in the sector. Not from troop movements, transports, or ID tags of individual cruisers. But getting on the surface to investigate up close will offer more direction. Understood. Thank you, Commander. May said. These are the latest reports from the Holonet. A compilation of news recordings and official speeches appeared in the trooper's place. Aerial images of where the Katasura district used to interlock into the rest of Zara. Now a massive gap between spires and Cato Nemoidia. On-the-ground images of medical personnel sweeping through rubble. The massive makeshift infirmaries and factories and parks as survivors were rescued from the wreckage. The recording interrupted pausing before disappearing, only to be replaced by Masamita, the Chagrian vice-chair of the Galactic Senate. Masters, he said, a slight bow to his head. We are ready for the negotiation. Obi-Wan steadied himself, the chair never feeling more ill-fitting than now. Yoda tapped his cane against the smooth council floor, then gestured to the hollow. May I present Alu Vayam, Minister of Defense of Cato Neimordia. The Neimordian faded into view to the right of Masamita, burnt orange robe and matching headpiece signaling his status within the government. And of course our Chancellor is listening as well. Palpatine's image appeared on the opposite side. Minister I am, Obi-Wan said nodding. On behalf of the Jedi Council, we extend our condolences to Cato Neimordia, as well as the Trade Federation. The Neimordia nodded, then held up a single finger. I appreciate your concern, Master Kenobi. However, we are in a state of crisis management here. I request that your proposal be brief. The Trade Federation and Senator Dodd have decided to stay out of this discussion. Given that Senator Dodd has a presence in Republic politics, 
In full transparency, separatist leaders have sent us a preliminary report to back up their findings pointing to suspicious republic activity. Given this, we remain in support of Count Dooku's suggestion and would appreciate Chancellor Palpatine's swift arrival to discuss matters. We love bringing you more Star Wars, and it is because of our partners that we can do this week after week. So we invite you to be one of those partners. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us keep this going. Your support will give us the ability to create future episodes, as well as provide you with the best sounding show on your playlist. And to express our appreciation, we will give you a shout out on our mid-series show that we do in the middle of every book. You will also be automatically entered in all future giveaways. All you have to do is go to the show notes and click that listener support link. Now let's get back to the show. Obi-Wan shot a quick look over to Palpatine. Access to anyone within Trade Federation leadership outside of Senator Dodd was an immediate victory. Even though the Cato Neimodian officials concerned themselves mostly with local governance, the planet itself was still the center of the Trade Federation's operations. Winning over the Minister of Defense and others could be significant for the Republic. Obi-Wan stood up. The morning light of Coruscant beaming through the projections. I understand. Simply put, we have assessed the situation, and we believe that sending Chancellor Palpatine would be a mistake for all involved. In this place, a single Jedi emissary with a minimal investigative support team should travel to Kato Neimoidia. Minister Iam opened his mouth, but Obi-Wan expected this, and though it would have been polite to let him speak, Obi-Wan continued to lay out all of his points. The arrival of the Chancellor represents both an immediate security risk and an invitation to escalate conflict. Because of his status within galactic politics, he would need to be accompanied by many layers of security, from guards to clones to possibly even Jedi. Not only would this create unease among a population currently in mourning, it might raise tensions with anyone who has prematurely blamed the Republic for the Katasura tragedy. A single action might thus bring the war to Cato Neimoidia. That is the last thing that your people need. Not because of any political stance, but because they are dealing with an unspeakable tragedy. We propose that this emissary be sent not simply to assess the damage, but also given the Jedi's training and tools to undergo a thorough investigation to identify the true source of the attack. At the same time, Obi-Wan paused to emphasize the oncoming point. The emissary would be available to hear your concerns and grievances surrounding the war or its impact on your operations. The support crew would be open to monitoring and only there are specialists to assist the investigation. Such a group would be far smaller and far more effective than what the Chancellor would require. We offer the resources of the Republic to you. Obi-Wan took a moment before looking Minister Iam square in the eye. In good faith. Several seconds passed with only the hum of the hollow projector. Iam looked off to the side and tented his long fingers before returning to Obi-Wan. This is an interesting proposal, Master Kenobi. I see your point. We believe such a move would minimize risk for all parties involved. 
I hope you consider the possibilities and see that as well. We want to assist Keto Neimoidia while avoiding any possibility of violence. This is not about the war. This is about the truth. I am again looked away, speaking inaudibly to someone unseen. You make very good points, Master Kenobi. I have considered the variables of your proposal, and I believe you are correct. This is the best way to work with the Republic without inviting unwanted attention or further violence. Obi-Wan exhaled and stifled the urge to smile. He'd been in many high-stakes negotiations during his life, but none as pivotal as this. Not just because of the implications for the galaxy, but also as a representative of the Jedi Council, as a Jedi Master. I thank you for your consideration. Sending a single Jedi requires minimal logistics. We will... Before Obi-Wan could finish, a new holographic image appeared. Count Dooku. Tension rippled through the Jedi Council chamber. A tangible shift in the air and the Force. If I may interject, Minister I am, Dooku said. While Master Kenobi and the Jedi Council speak honorably, might I remind you of the long history of prejudice between the Republic and the Nemordian people? Master Kenobi, I must apologize, I am said. The Trade Federation has invited Count Dooku to listen in on our discussion. A series of hollow figures stood in front of Obi-Wan. The unlikely image of Palpatine and Dooku mere meters apart, offering a stark representation of the galaxy's balance of power. But rather than speak, Palpatine turned to Obi-Wan and gestured for him to continue. All that time with Dex culminated in this critical juncture. Cups of calf and long hours never being more important than now. The Jedi are outside of galactic politics. What is your concern, Count Dooku? Outside of galactic politics? I find that statement amusing, given that Jedi are leading your clones into battle while you represent the Republic in a political negotiation. Similarly, any investigatory crew that you bring will be under the employ of the Republic and not to be trusted. Obi-Wan wanted to say, get to the point, but losing his composure in the face of a liar and murderer would instantly hand over victory to a Sith. He held on to the image of Qui-Gon's calm in the face of danger, a centering he relied upon when needed, and spoke directly to I am, a new idea sparking in his mind. I wish to allay any suspicions and fears from you, the people of Cato Neimoidia, the Trade Federation, and... He looked at the Sith Lord's hologram, Count Dooku. Thus, I will augment the proposal. I will go. By myself. Without any support. The investigation may take a little longer, as I am merely one person. But I am willing to trade this to ensure good faith among all parties. Dooku raised an eyebrow, 
and Obi-Wan locked his focus on the Count, even though his instincts wanted to pull away and see Palpatine's response. Master Kenobi, I believe the last time we saw each other, you and your apprentice tried to murder me. Obi-Wan considered reminding everyone that just prior to that, Dooku tried executing him, Anakin, and Senator Amidala in a giant Genosian arena. However, that seemed politically unwise, given the delicacy of the moment. Consider that a misunderstanding, he bit out. If you haven't been listening, I have promised Minister Ayam a commitment to the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. <laughs> the truth, Dooku laughed. What a way with words you have. Truth can be manipulated. How do we know Minister Ayam can trust you? Trust. Obi-Wan eyed Dooku. Even as a hollow broadcast from across the galaxy, he recognized exactly the game being played here. Every single word from Dooku was both a challenge to him and a threat to Ayam, Dodd, and whoever else might be listening. Obi-Wan considered all of that, then launched a counterattack as targeted as a swing of his lightsaber. You knew my master. You were his master. So tell me, Count. Did you trust Qui-Gon Jinn? The mere mention of the fallen Jedi's name shifted Dooku's expression. His eyes softening and mouth turning for a flash before returning to a cold neutral. The first, possibly only, crack in Dooku's armor. Qui-Gon Jinn was an honorable man. Now Obi-Wan moved to the offensive. A momentum to his words. I carry his teachings with me every day. If you trusted Qui-Gon, then know you can trust me as well. Dooku's eyes darted. A quick movement that probably gauged those around him. Obi-Wan took a moment to do the same thing himself and caught the smallest smirk on Palpatine's lips. You make a convincing argument, Master Kenobi. Very well. I endorse this proposal with two further caveats. You must arrive on an unarmed Republic shuttle, not a starfighter or other vehicle with attack capabilities. And you are prohibited from any communications with either Coruscant or the Jedi Council. Of course, Dooku said. I have no true say in this. I am merely voicing an opinion. Minister Ayam must make the decision. Anything that ensures diplomatic discussions with minimal risk of conflict or violence is appreciated. Count Dooku's caveats make sense. Ayam said quickly, his tone as straight as his words. Obi-Wan considered the possibility of being completely stranded on Kato Neimoidia without any means of connecting with support. He bit down on his lip, mind racing at options to counter the suggestion when Palpatine's voice broke through. The Republic accepts these terms. Master Kenobi will depart tomorrow after a day of preparation. I am looked among the different parties in the hollow communications. 
We welcome any assistance that may help us in our time of need. I look forward to seeing you in person, Minister I am. Obi-Wan bowed his head and was about to signal for the transmission to end when Dooku spoke up. One final detail, my friends. He said the word friends, stretching out with a coarse inflection. I believe in supporting Kato Neimordia during its time of need. As such, I shall send my own representative from the Confederacy of Independent Systems to ensure that this Jedi emissary remains. Dooku smiled in a way that seemed sincere, only on the surface. Honest. And with that, Dooku faded from the transmission before anyone else could respond. Well, it seems that Dooku is sticking his neck where it doesn't belong. But when he talks, it is almost like he is in a lightsaber battle. While Obi-Wan and Dex plotted this discussion well, I don't think that Obi-Wan was planning for Dooku to show up. Honestly, there was a lot going on in this part. The way Obi-Wan felt about sitting on the Jedi Council and his awareness of himself being a master. The feeling of not being worthy and a lack of experience that was almost overwhelming. To the point that he had to think about his fallen master to calm himself. This all happens before the call is even made. Then the call happens, and it is one of those calls that is going great until someone interrupts the conversation and messes everything up. Obi-Wan had Minister Iron ready to go. Dex had told him all that he needed to say, how the Nymordians looked at everything from a risk factor, and he was using every bit of the information, showing how a single Jedi team would limit the risk. Because if Palpatine goes, he will have to bring a large security force, plus the people doing the investigation, which could be hundreds of people. With one Jedi and a few people to assist, things will go a lot smoother. And Minister Iam is in complete agreement with his terms. Then here comes good talking Count Dooku, just causing chaos to the conversation, talking about some trust, knowing that the Republic has a prejudice to the Nymordians. But Obi-Wan used some punch-in-the-gut tactics and hit Dooku right where it hurt. He brings up Qui-Gon into the mix by mentioning the master and apprentice role that they all play, which causes Dooku to become uncomfortable. Obi-Wan says plainly if you trust Qui-Gon, then you can trust him, because Obi-Wan was his apprentice and held the same morals and values of his master. Dooku was just stuck at this point, because he agrees with Obi-Wan. Then to show more good faith, Obi-Wan volunteers to go by himself, which I think is crazy. You are going to a planet of people that hate you. Not a good survival tactic. Then to make it even worse, Dooku suggests that he doesn't bring any weapons and he has no contact with outside sources. It's a trap. Obi-Wan don't go, Dooku is trying to kill you. All around, this doesn't sound good, but after I am agrees to the terms that Dooku has set, Palpatine tells I am that Obi-Wan will leave within 24 hours. But before the call can end, Count Dooku states that he will be sending someone to make sure that Obi-Wan is being truthful. Then he cuts off the call, and that's where it left us at. So let's get back to the story to find out what happens next. My research has informed a strategy I suggest we employ for this operation. Obi-Wan said to the remaining members of the Jedi Council, about 15 minutes had passed since all of the transmissions ended, leaving the assembled Jedi free from the interplay of political and military influence for a more open discussion. The Chancellor is right. This is an opportunity for negotiation. Considering how all communication to the Trade Federation has gone through Senator Dodd since Geonosis, the fact that he is staying out of this is notable. He took in a breath, running through all of the points he'd discussed with Dex. The Trade Federation has denounced Newt Gunray as the leader of a splinter group. This bombing, whoever did it, is clearly the act of an extremist of some sort. These are related symptoms, not a root cause. 
Extremism will only accelerate the war, not bring it to a peaceful conclusion. All eyes sat on him, without any objection so far. But we have an opportunity now, a unique one, to show the Trade Federation that remaining neutral in the face of extremism is, in fact, enabling terrorism, and thus making the war more dangerous. Yoda watched the space for reactions. Kiari Mundi tented his fingers and leaned forward, scar still healing across his cheek from his recent encounter with General Grievous. I believe the strategy here to be equal parts diplomacy and negotiation, with the key being to understand the Namoidians as a people. Because their culture is based on a philosophy of risk assessment, we must build a message around the inherent risk of prolonging the war by letting extremism grow. We must remind them of not just the economic risks of instability across the galaxy, but the potential loss of life as the violence escalates, including, as they have discovered, to their own people. I see a mission in two parts. First, gain the trust of the Trade Federation by successfully clearing the Republic, then appeal to their sense of risk assessment to actively support the Republic. That move would take away major logistical resources from the Separatists, all hopefully leading to de-escalation and eventually negotiations, rather than more fighting. And above all else, we must show good faith. Obi-Wan took a breath, giving the Council and the Chancellor a moment to process the information. Finally, Yoda broke the silence. Informative, Master Kenobi. Mmm, an astute observation you have provided. While you depart for Cato Naimodia, we have a new matter to discuss. The Chancellor's request to prepare Padawans for the field, May said with a solemn nod. Padawans for the military? Obi-Wan asked, unaware that Palpatine had asked for such a thing. Padawans had certainly fought in skirmishes alongside the clones. Geonosis saw more than its share, including Anakin. But further blurring of the lines between the Jedi Order and the military? The idea caused enough unease in Obi-Wan that it momentarily overtook the mission to Cato Neymordia in his thoughts. A recent discussion interrupted by Cato Neymordia's tragedy. We must act in the best interests of the Republic. We are at war, May said, as definitive a statement as Obi-Wan had heard the old master make. The Chancellor is allowing the Jedi freedom to assess the best way to balance military assignments between Jedi Knights and Padawans. Your concern, it is not. Focus on Cato Neimoidia. The various council members murmured an affirmation, a vote of confidence in Obi-Wan, that explained Yoda's look. He inhaled sharply at this realization, and uncertainty flooded him. Not at the ability to do the job that he'd meticulously researched and planned out, but at the trust the council, the chancellor, placed in him. Had he earned it? Obi-Wan let the feeling pass and simply bowed his head. I will begin my preparations immediately. But, he posed to Yoda, my former Padawan is still new in his role. 
Shall I speak to him about the Chancellor's militarization requests as well? Skywalker is no longer your responsibility. May said, the lines in his face shifting ever so slightly. Obi-Wan recognized the look. It seemed to be a constant whenever Anakin and Mace crossed paths. Even Jedi had interpersonal conflicts, he supposed. Yoda must have sensed the change in the air, stepping in with his usual softer touch. Patience and humility, Skywalker and other new Jedi Knights had learned to earn their title, he said. To show the younglings their next task is... A decade had passed since Obi-Wan handled the responsibility Yoda referred to, and he cringed a bit inside. It quickly turned into a grin at the thought of Anakin Skywalker, the person Qui-Gon believed to be the chosen one, the young man who charged headfirst into Count Dooku's lightning attack, now headed toward the biggest challenge of his life. As his former master, this assignment you should give him. Warn him, perhaps. So many questions the younglings ask. <laughs> so many questions. The one thing that always gets me is Yoda, the wisest and oldest Jedi cracking jokes. Always got something funny to say. But this last part of the chapter was pretty basic with information and just storytelling, just filler stuff, except for one part. And I didn't catch it until the second time I listened to it. This was something that I never understood. I have watched the Clone Wars so many times. This was one of the questions that I always wanted to know. Why were the Padawans fighting in the war? Well, Mike just answered that question. Palpatine asked for the Padawans to be assigned to battle. This would spread them out with their masters, making it easier for him to execute Order 66. But this makes Obi-Wan feel a bit uneasy. And after hearing the way that Mace talks in the Clone Wars and in this book, I am starting to have this feeling that he liked the war. It might be his dark side nature coming out, but just the way he said, we are at war, gives me a feeling that he enjoyed it. But that's about all this part of the story had to offer us. So let's get to the quote of this week. And it comes to us from Francis of Azizi. And he said, start by doing what's necessary, then do what's possible. And suddenly you are doing the impossible. This quote is referring to taking the first step. It takes courage to move into the unknown. Starting is one of the hardest things to do, but you can start by doing what's necessary or important. Start with the easier tasks, and once you build momentum, even the most challenging tasks will not seem as difficult. Don't give up or don't wait for anything, and keep on doing your best, because that's what matters the most. Basically, perseverance is the key. When we constantly strive for the best, even the impossible becomes possible. You never truly know what you are capable of doing until you try. That means that you must start somewhere by doing the things that you know you can achieve. Go pay for a business license or get a patent on your idea. These are small and cost-efficient ways to start. Then you can move into some of the harder tasks. And if you don't know how to do something, we are in the age of technology. There's probably an article or a YouTube video that you can find that will help you. One thing that I do is I watch or read 10 different things. And then if eight of those 10 things say the same thing, then that's what is probably correct. You know, you can't trust everything online. So do your research. And that's all I think we have for today. Join us next week for part eight of Brotherhood. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. 
Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media and was distributed by Swaycast Networks. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel. Star Wars Brotherhood was read to you by Jason O'Dagan. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.